You know, when we put out our lineup about who's going to be speaking, who's going to be presenting at the Leadership Summit, it always surprises us at who really garners a lot of the attention, why people want to come. And our next speaker is why a lot of you are here today, and that is for Pastor Alistair Bagg. Darlin, I've had some come up to us and say, just hope he knows the impact that he's had on my life. The radio program that I listened to on my way in to work. And just visiting with him backstage, him saying, you know, that his radio program is just an extension of what he does out of the pulpit. And I said, what are you going to speak on? He goes, I really only got one thing I ever speak on. <laughs> so you're going to get it today. Matter of fact, who who put me in connection with Pastor Begg is our peer from Ohio, Aaron Bear. And Ohio being part of the Daniel Impact, and Aaron Bear said, yeah, you know, Pastor Begg's a friend. I think he'd be great at your summit and all that. So when I got a hold of Pastor Begg, I said, Pastor Begg, uh, first of all, understand I'm a little bit Dutch. And I just want to know, do you believe in free speech? And he said, of course, Bob. He said, you got, you, I, I've been in Scotland, and I've been in England. I, I've been on, I, you know, lad, I've been all over the place. And it's really bad Scottish. But anyhow, he said, I love America, and I love our commitment to free speech. And I said, would you mind coming and giving one then? Pastor Begg, although he does not look near his age, he's been in pastoral ministry since 1975. The first time I saw him on video, honestly, I said, he looks like Paul McCartney. You know that? And Darla right away fell in love with his voice. And you can still hear the Scotland in his voice as he served the Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh. Today, he's the senior pastor of Parkside Church near Cleveland, Ohio, and I think it's worth noting, he's been a pastor there for 40 years. 40 years. Meaning that commitment to that community, that commitment to that congregation, but also that congregation's encouragement to him to stay in the fight as pastor in their community, I think speaks volumes and a model for the church. He and his wife have been married for 48 years. They have three children. They have eight grandchildren. He's authored several books. You guys listen to him on the radio. Some listen to him in, in his pews. But you get to listen to him here now at the Leadership Summit. Give a warm welcome to Pastor Alistair Begg. Thank you. Well, it's questionable whether the, the Scots or the Dutch um, really have an angle on that free stuff. Um, I do know that the limbo dance was invented by a Scotsman uh, trying to get into a pay toilet in a station in Glasgow. So. Well, it is a privilege to be here. Uh, I come as a servant of the Word. I come as a Scot who is very thankful to be a citizen of the United States of America, which is 
uh, my adopted home. And as a servant of the Word, I want to read from the Bible and then pray very briefly and then make comments accordingly. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 2. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came to him, bringing a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. A brief prayer, an old Anglican prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. Well, I'm charged with the privilege or the responsibility of addressing the question, of a biblical worldview and to at least consider how such a perspective would influence the way in which we respond to the opportunities that are before us in exercising the privileges of voting in our democracy. It's obviously a huge topic and uh, capable of uh, uh, accompanying danger, the danger of just being completely lost in it all. And I confess, in getting ready for this, I did get lost a few times. And I'm aware of the fact that many uh, pastors are just really, really good at getting lost. Many, many sermons are akin to Columbus's uh, visit to America, (laughs) in as much as when he set out, he didn't know where he was going. When he got here, he didn't know where he was. And when he got back, he didn't even know where he'd been. And uh, you've fallen asleep listening to many of those talks, I'm sure, and I know because I've given plenty of them myself. In the back of my mind, I heard the late George Burns pointing out that when you have an opportunity such as this, Burns said, what you need to make sure is that you have a good introduction, that you have a good conclusion, and that you keep the two of them as close together as you possibly can. (laughs) And so let me try and do that. Uh, You remember the old uh, show on TV, I can name that tune in six notes or four notes or whatever it was? Well, I want to suggest to you that I can provide you with a biblical worldview in four words. And here are the words. Good, bad, new, perfect. 
First of all, good, good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. What a revolutionary thought, that before there was time, before there was anything, there was God. And the Bible begins there and continues to unfold all the way through, making a very straightforward and foundational statement concerning that which God made. The Bible explains that creation speaks to this issue. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where his voice is not heard. It's gone out to the ends of the earth. God speaks in the world that he has made. He speaks in the hearts of men and women by our consciences. Because when Paul picks up this very same notion in Romans chapter 1, he explains that atheism is actually a choice. Because what God has made plain to man is absolutely plain. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature are, says the apostle Paul, clearly perceived. Therefore, it is a choice to stare into the immensity of space, to take a newborn baby in your arms, and say, no, no. We rather live with the notion of time plus matter plus chance. Now, it is because of this, because God has done this, that we have the fixed point for morality, we have the fixed point for truth. Having been made in his image, we all possess a dignity. Some more dignified than others, admittedly, but we do possess a dignity. No matter where we are on the place on planet Earth, men and women, boys and girls, everyone fashioned in the image of God. And God has put eternity in the hearts of men and women. That's why, incidentally, when you go to a funeral of a work colleague, uh, someone uh, driving in the car with you says, you know, I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in God. I don't really believe in anything at all. And you go through the funeral, and as you're making your way back to the office, you're intrigued by the fact that this person who has disavowed any belief in these things at all says to you, well, I'm sure old Bill is okay now. <laughs> okay, for what? I thought there was nothing. Now, the great champion of the black holes Stephen Hawking, memorialized in movies and also in terms of his intelligence, he provides us with the absolute contrast to what the Bible says. This is a quote from him. If there is no God, and we have evolved by chance through millions of years, then everything that happens, good or bad, must be viewed as simply the result of random, pitiless, indifference. From this perspective, to ask why is not only meaningless, it is irrelevant. 
The choice is clear. They're not on a sliding scale. They are set in juxtaposition to one another. That's the first word, good. Second word is bad. Or we're living in a broken world. I don't think you can get an argument about the brokenness of the world, no matter who you speak to. You can mention it on the plane, you can talk to a young person, and they will pretty well acknowledge that things seem to be upside down rather than the right way up. Where the issue begins to turn, of course, is on providing any kind of explanation as to why we are the way we are, and of course, how we might be able to fix ourselves. Well, the Bible is equally clear about that, and it's helpful, isn't it? Because it tells us that the world that we know, the world that we know today is not the world as God made it in all of its pristine goodness, but is the world that we have spoiled. That when you read the early chapters of um, Genesis, you discover that Adam and Eve listened to a lie. They listened to a lie, and having embraced the lie, they lived with the chaos that followed. In fact, if you pay attention to it, you realize that we could hardly blame them, as it were, because we ourselves, by nature, know how to do these very things. What things? Well, they doubted God's goodness. They rejected God's wisdom. They rebelled against God's authority. And they were, in turn, banished from God's presence. Banished from His presence. This, you see, is the great chasm. This is the great divide. Although contemporary philosophical notions suggest that the great divide is not here, but it is between those who are the oppressors and those who are the victims. These various groups of individuals, collectively responsible or vulnerable, whatever it might be, and as you try and navigate your way through that kind of thinking, and you come back to the Bible, you realize how straightforward it is. It says that by nature, we're alienated from God. That there is an invisible boundary between a holy God and the creation that he has made. That God is beyond the range of our intuitive radar. We can't access God on our own time, and on our own terms. If the alienation is to be addressed, the initiative has to come from God's side. And that is, of course, what the Bible says, that God has taken the initiative. Now, I'm a child of the 60s, and so most of the music I quote now, people said I never heard of it, and young people think I'm just an old fogey. I get it. But, um, for me, the best lyricist of the 20th century, in my estimate, is none other than Paul Simon. And if you trace his journey through his life to his early 80s now, you realize that he has impinged upon many of these great themes, and not least of all in the 60s and 70s, this whole matter of alienation. Why is it that I feel alienated from myself, that I feel alienated from those who should be my friends and my brothers and my sisters? Why am I like this? And the answer, of course, is that it is our alienation from God that is the great alienation. Kathy, I'm lost, I said, though I knew she was sleeping. I'm empty and aching, and I don't know why. 
Just counting the cars on the New Jersey Turnpike. We've all come to look for America. Where is America? Who is America? Why am I the way I am? The answer is very clear. Not only have all of us been made in the image of God, but all of us are flawed. All of us have sinned, and we've come short of the glory of God. We, we couldn't keep our own standards up, let alone anybody else's. Certainly not God's. Years ago, in the Times, G.K. Chesterton answered a question which had been posed, that is, in the, the London Times. I'm not quoting the New York Times. Just relax in your seats. And, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, incidentally, G.K. Chesterton was a funny man. He was a funny man. He was a large man, and he often wore a cloak which uh, in the windy streets of London, he would wrap around himself as he went. And on one occasion, as he comes around a corner in London, he wraps his cloak around him, wraps it around his head, and he falls over in the street. He bumps into a man who is walking along carrying a grandfather clock under his arm. And as Chesterton looks up at this individual, he says to him, why couldn't you wear a wristwatch like everybody else? <laughs> So he's funny, but he's also honest. The question that was raised in the Times was this. What is wrong with the world today? You know his answer? Right into the editor of the Times, he says, What is wrong with the world today? Dear sir, I am. The issue is always our personal responsibility. And the real question then, is how can a good God look on his creation that has turned his back on him, look on us without displeasure, and how can we look on a holy God without fear? And that is the answer that is provided in the new. Good, fashioned in his image. Bad, decided to go our own way. New. Where is this new? Well, it's not found in the substitute gods that we have embraced in the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st. We are raising generations of people who believe themselves to be born without reason, to prolong themselves by chance, and to die and just simply to go into oblivion. Is there any wonder that they find themselves alarmed as they ferret through social media, as they try and find an identity, try and create an identity, try and be a something, try and be a someone. Now we need to say to these people, do you understand that when you think about identity in terms of a biblical view, it's not an identity that we create. It is an identity that we receive. The senator mentioned it earlier on saying he had discovered himself, irrespective of his family background, to be a child of the king, that he had a huge family, a global family, an interracial family, and all true because of the new. I don't know very much about art at all. I go to museums and go through them very quickly and then buy the book and read it on my own later so that I can say I was there and then I find out what it was that I wasn't looking at while I was there. But there is, there is one painting that I do want to uh, find, and 
It's done by Gauguin, the post-impressionist painter, who died as a result of a dissolute life in the, in the islands. He was brought up as a Roman Catholic. He was creedal in his education. And in the largest of these paintings that he ever did, which is in the Boston Museum of Fine Art, as it turns out, I haven't been, he actually did something that he doesn't do on his paintings, or he didn't do in his paintings. He wrote on them. And he wrote up on the top left-hand corner of the painting. I know because I've seen the photograph of it. I haven't seen the painting. Uh, what did he write? Well, he wrote, uh, Du venons-nous, qui sommes-nous, où allons-nous? Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? Now, don't you think it's fair to be able to say to our friends and our neighbors, our family members, our work colleagues, my friend, if you do not have a worldview that can sufficiently answer those fundamental questions, I suggest to you, it's time to consider another one. And I would like to encourage you to consider the possibility that in one of the songs from the 60s again in the Christian world, that Jesus is the answer for the world today, that he is the one who ushers in the new. He's the one that ushers in the new. When Peter writes about it, he says, Christ died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, to establish an entirely new relationship that Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, that Jesus bore the punishment that we deserve in order that he might grant to us a forgiveness that we don't deserve. Now, it's relatively easy for these words to flow from my lips, but the fact of the matter is that what I have just said is immensely offensive in our day, in fact, in every day. It was so when Paul proclaimed the same message to the Corinthians. You remember, he says to them, this message of the cross is absolute foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, this message, which is at the heart of Christianity, which is the foundation of our view of things, is offensive to our neighbors and our friends because it accuses them in terms of their moral framework and in terms of their intellectual capacity. At least that's what I've discovered in talking with my friends. This is what they will say. What you're propounding, Beg, is actually an insult to me, intellectually, first of all, because I want you to know that I am too intelligent to believe that stuff. Or it is an insult to me morally, ethically, because I am too good to need that stuff. So people basically are saying the, the kind of thing that is said when the average uh, uh, CEO in some organization has to have his photographs taken for the annual brochure, and uh, he sits down and uh, his wife has got him as organized as possible. And, uh, the, the photographer comes in, and the fellow says, now, I, I, I just hope that, uh, because this is a very important brochure, and uh, I hope that this will do me justice. To which the photographer says, sir, what you require is not justice, but mercy. <laughs> Look at you. 
Look at you. No matter what your wife has done for you, you don't look that good. Well, that's, of course, Portia, isn't it? Not Portia the car, Portia, P-O-R-T-I-A, in the Merchant of Venice, speaking to Shylock. If justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. If we were simply to get what we deserve, we would get hell. How then is this eradicated, dealt with? Because Jesus Christ has stepped into that place and borne that. You say to yourself, well, this is interesting. It bears no resemblance at all to the thing you just read out of the Gospel of Mark. We thought it was going to be a nice story, and look with the way you've gone with it. That's, that's, that's tough stuff. Well, let me explain to you why I read out of it. First of all, it actually happened, you see. And it is a striking reminder of the fact that Jesus is always in the Gospels concerned about the least and the last and the left out, the margins on society. <laughs> the religious zealots who were very good at rules and regulations, they didn't have much time for him at all. But the people like the woman at the well who'd had five husbands and was living with a guy, she was really drawn to him. The tax collectors and the sinners and so on. And of course, since the message of Jesus, this great uh, savior and liberator had gone around, it's not surprising that four decent guys would be prepared to take their friend to meet Jesus because after all, Amongst other things, he's a healer. And you know the story that they gather him there, uh, there's no room, and so they open up the roof, they let him down through the roof, and you can imagine the sense of anticipation and the chaos, and uh, there he arrives, laid out on the bed. And Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wow. If I was one of the four fellows, I'd be saying, hey, no, 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 hey, hang on. No, we didn't come for that. No, we're not, we're not on the forgiveness thing. We're on the legs thing. We're here for legs. We're not here for an invisible forgiveness. We're here for a physical, radical healing. And meanwhile, the Pharisees, they get off on another track with it. Well, who could say he forgives sins? Only God alone. It never occurred to them for one moment that in their presence was the incarnate God. And then Jesus, of course, turns to them and says, let me ask you a question. Which do you think is easier, to say, son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, pick up your bed and walk? Well, I think you would probably say, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, because how could anybody know? Your sins are forgiven. Have a great day. But if you say, rise, pick up your bed and walk, and he doesn't move an inch, you got a real problem. <laughs> and so he says, in order that you might know that the Son of Man, self-designation, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, pick up your bed, walk, and go home. And that's exactly what he did. What was Jesus doing? It's not that he was disinterested in his legs. He fixed his legs. It's not that Jesus is disinterested in politics. He established civil government. It's not that Jesus is disinterested in whether you're married or not married, or whether you've got a job or you've got no job, or whether you've got cancer. Or whatever. He's interested in all of that stuff. But what Jesus was doing was putting his finger on the man's and every man and woman's basic need. 
the need for forgiveness. Why? Because although he made it good, it has turned bad under our role, and we are aware of the fact that all of our attempts throughout history, and I've only lived, I'm in my eighth decade now, I guess, so I'm old enough to remember the end of rationing after the Second World War. I'm old enough to remember when there was a Berlin Wall. I'm old enough to remember that dreadful atrocity of the Bork hearings for the Supreme Court. I'm old enough to remember what it was like when Clarence Thomas was put through that exercise. I'm old enough to remember the impeachment of Clinton and the impeachment, and so on and so on and so on. And what do I know? I know this, that education, science, politics, councils, summits are unable in and of themselves, as you, I know, agree, to satisfy the longings of the human heart. And the problem is that if we're not careful, yes, in the land of the brave and the home of the free, if we're not careful, we start to say, in the words of Lennon and McCartney, we can work it out. We've done this before. We can do this. Let me suggest to you, we're singing the wrong song. The song we need to sing is help. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. But now I'm older, I'm not so self-assured. And now I've found, I've changed my mind, I've opened up the door. Help me if you can. That's what we want to say to people. In their helplessness, there is one who helps. Jesus is the helper. He's the healer. And the fact is, it's not that people have considered the evidence of these things and they found it wanting. It's just that they've never considered the evidence that they'd be made absolutely new. If we had time, we could rehearse the radical transformation in the hatchet man in Nixon's White House. Dear Chuck Colson, I revere his memory. And how, when he met with that man on the West Coast who was sharing Jesus with him, and he argued with him, and they debated things, and they thought about truth and about objectivity and so on. And, he, he, and as the man spoke to him, he said to him, you know, Chuck, the thing that stops you is one thing, pride, pride. That's your problem. And Coulson, you will know from reading his book that he left the house, he got into his car, he put the keys in the ignition, he turned it on, and he burst into tears. And he said, you know what? That man up there is absolutely right. He was intelligent. He was brave. He was a Marine. He had the ball at his feet, and he realized, actually, he had nothing. And those of us who live to know him, take us places and speak to us, realize what an amazing transformation in the life of that fellow. Now, before I come to the last word, which I must do, let me just say in passing that although our friends who do not share our beliefs regard us as being part of some kind of superstitious, primitive, bygone age of myth and um, bigotry, although we may be regarded in that way, do not allow yourself to be pinned back against the wall. We are able to say to our friends and neighbors, have you ever considered these claims? 
Look at this stuff. It is actually historical. In other words, it really happened. It is rational. It makes sense once you start from here. It is also universal in its appeal. It's not for a certain demographic. It's not for a white person, a black person, an Asian person, a Scots person, a Dutch person. It's for every person. Do you realize that every single person on the face of God's earth needs the gospel? Needs the gospel. Why? Well, because there's only one Savior. No one else is qualified to save. No one else dealt with sin. No one else triumphed over death. No one else ascended to the Father. No one else will return in power and in glory. Good, bad, new, perfect, perfect. Well, none of us are perfect, we know that. If, we, if you doubt that, you only, you only need a spouse. They will keep you right on that. <laughs> and the story of the biblical worldview is that it is both now and not yet. John writes about it, and he says, Now we are the children of God, but it does, not, it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I don't know what your view is on climate stuff. I know that <laughs> weather is not climate. I've figured that out. But whatever your view is on that, there's sort of a apocalyptic cries of people, which is understandable on the one side, has actually been answered in the gospel, that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth in which dwells righteousness. We will deal with cancer. God will deal with it. God will deal with all this. All the plastic bottles in, in, uh, in Lake Erie, all, all the things that went on fire before I got to Cleveland when they managed to turn the river on fire. You can see why I was immediately drawn there as a place that you would like to spend your time. <laughs> no, you see, it matters. The longings of the human heart for peace, love, forgiveness, harmony will all be found in perfection. You know, Woodstock was 1969. I don't know what age you were. I was 17. I knew about it. We had our own version of it in the Isle of Wight Pop Festival, to which I went against my parents' best wishes. But you know that when Woodstock unfolded, it was regarded as, quotes, an attempt to rebuild our country's soul. Well, how are we doing? Now, the answer to the rebuilding of our souls is found in Jesus himself. Now, having said all of that, let me say, three further words in terms of how would such a perspective translate into um, our exercising our voting privileges. First of all, we must look for integrity. Integrity. Truth in the inner man. Truth. Uh, P.G. Woodhouse says, golf is the infallible test of this. The man who can go into a patch of rough, rough alone with the knowledge that only God is watching him and play his ball where it lies is the man who will serve you faithfully and well. All right? I have no comment on Bill Clinton's scores, but I'm telling you, P.G. Woodhouse has got it right. Integrity. Second, bravery. Bravery. This is no time for spineless clerics. There is no time for school teachers that have got no backbone. This is no time for the titans of American industry 
to swallow the nonsense that is promulgated on a daily basis. We need bravery, bravery. It's, it's, it's Athanasius time. Athanasius, the whole world is against you. Then said Athanasius, I am against the whole world. Brave enough to stand up in the face of racial prejudice and educational chaos. Brave enough to take on the onslaught against the life of the unborn. Brave enough to challenge the notion that women are only free if they are free to rid themselves of an unwanted child. It is not true. Brave enough to take a stand for those who are on the margins of society and who are most vulnerable and most in need. Brave enough to establish the immutability of biological sex. Brave enough to say, if you were born as a man, you will die as a man, no matter what you do to yourself. Brave enough to uphold that. On the basis of what? Our prejudice? No, on the basis of where we started. He made us in the image of God, male and female. Brave enough to say that the only place for sex is within the framework of a heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong relationship, which is called marriage, and which is the only real marriage. Last word, humility, humility. Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, the mighty man in his strength, but let him boast in this that he knows me, the living God. We who are in Christ live in this world as members of another world. It's time for us to oppose the lies while at the same time feeling compassion for those who've been deceived. It's time for us to pray for a massive spiritual awakening. We don't need a church that will move with the world. We need one that will move the world. And if the signs of the prophets are written on the subway walls and the tenement halls, they're also carved in to some of the most historic buildings in, in our nation. Well, I don't have time to give you on a little travel trip, but if you go to the south entrance of Union Station in Washington, D.C., what will you find? Three pieces of scripture. The desert shall bloom like a rose. All things under his feet. The truth will set you free. Listen, all flesh is like grass, the glory of man like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel has been preached to you, and it is this gospel that we take out from here. Thank you for your patience. <laughs>